As you take your seats, I would invite you to join me in your copies of God's Word, where we'll be in the book of Colossians. This morning, we're going to be continuing from where we were this last Sunday evening, looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, we will, in fact, be looking at the very topic that we just sang about, the power of the cross, how Christ has made us alive together with him. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Now, we've been going through this short little epistle for a few months now, primarily on Sunday evenings, and so, as I said last week, I figured that when given the opportunity to preach a few Sunday mornings, it only made sense to, to stay in Colossians. It makes a little bit more sense to be here, grounded in one part of God's Word, than to hop around from place to place, as it were. And so as we've been making our way through it, we've observed a few things. One, uh, that Paul talks pretty positively of the church here compared to some of his other letters for other churches. Uh, Paul, in fact, uh, tells us multiple times in multiple ways in the early chapter that the church here has been found to be uh, faithful. They've, they've stood their ground. They've been good believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. But in the midst of that, there has been some false teachers lurking about. There's been some false teachers who have come in and, in fact, tried to convince the Christians here that Christ is not sufficient. Not that he's altogether unnecessary. No, not that he's not the Lord. But as so often as false teachers do, seeking to add just a little bit to the gospel that they had heard. Telling them, we saw last week and as we'll see again tonight, uh, that Christ is not sufficient that he is not supreme, that he is not preeminent, that there is more that these believers need. And so these false teachers, they brought with them teachings such as mysticism, teachings such as the theosophy that we looked at last week, spiritualism, a form of Gnosticism. Uh, these false teachers seem to be obsessed with the old covenant Jewish regulations such as circumcision and the obeying of those aspects of the law which have ceased with Christ. They've brought with them an asceticism, a focus on the spirit world and on the higher powers and the hierarchy of angels and of demons. They've brought with them a focus on visions and personal revelations. Last week, we looked at some of the comparisons that we could make in our modern day culture, how some of these things are very much so still alive and still very much so have followers. And we've seen Paul's answer. Paul's answer from the very first chapter, the very first verse, has been simply this. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. It is not Christ plus these other things they bring. It is Christ in Christ alone. It is in Christ. It is in Christ and His gospel and His cross alone that you, brothers and sisters, can find fullness. And in fact, if you look for that fullness, if you look for that completion anywhere else... If you seek to add to that fullness that Christ has brought you by looking to other directions, you'll only be brought down to further emptiness, be brought into further bondage. It is Christ, His person, and His work. Christ, His person, and His work that are central and should remain central. This is Paul's message throughout this entire letter. It's on every page. And so we're going to pray one more time asking for the Lord's blessing, and then we're going to read His word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift which is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word. 
Uh, We thank you that we don't come here week after week to hear a TED talk. But we come to hear the very life-giving words of King Jesus himself. Father, we thank you that in it we are given everything we need for life and for godliness. And we pray now, Father, that you would illuminate our eyes. That you would illuminate our eyes so that we may see and behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and soften our hearts so that we may receive these words. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 will be our focus, uh, but we will read verses 6 through 15 uh, to ensure that we get the proper context and as an act of worship to the Lord this morning. This is God's holy word, brothers and sisters. Hear it now. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. We'll observe in our passage this morning the power of the cross. First, to us. Secondly, to God. And third and finally, to the enemy. The power of the cross to us, to God, and finally to the enemy. Look with me at verse 13 as we see the power of the cross to us, the believer. Paul writes there in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, it is you that God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice here in our first point, before we say anything else, how Paul directs us, how Paul addresses us, how Paul speaks to us. What is it he says of us? You were dead. Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Not sick, not weak, not not just struggling a little bit. D-E-A-D, dead. Dead. Paul doesn't, as the modernist and humanist of our current culture do, he doesn't describe us as being primarily good. Or even as some might acknowledge, maybe we're a bit of good mixed with a bit of bad. A neutral, as it were. He doesn't, as so many cultural Christians across the West 
describe us as simply being sick with sin. Get that phrase out of your vocabulary. As if we were capable of finding a cure to our plight. No, Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, describes us as being dead. And dead means dead. It doesn't mean sick. It means dead. Paul paints a picture of your spiritual condition before Christ rescued you as being a rotten, stinking corpse. Or better yet, the imagery that we would derive from the Old Testament, a pile of dry bones. So many today in their efforts to describe our condition and the human plight and the problems we see around us use an analogy that we're drowning at sea. They would argue that we are flailing in the ocean, struggling to stay above the waves. And then there comes Jesus. As we're fighting, as we're flailing, right as our hand's about to go under the water, here comes Jesus. The ladder comes down from the helicopter, he reaches his hand down to us, and all we have to do is simply reach up and grab it. But this is not the picture that Paul paints for us, is it, brothers and sisters? No, the picture that Paul paints for us is not one of us fighting, not one of us flailing, not one of us putting our best foot forward in an effort that we couldn't simply meet the rest of the expectation. We were not simply struggling against the waves of our sin. This is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture that Paul paints here and in other places such as Galatians and Ephesians chapter 2 is that of a swollen corpse already rotting away at the bottom of the sea of our own depravity. Jesus did not wait for you, brother and sister, to reach your hand up, as it were, above the waves. No, Jesus dove in without your permission, and he pulled you from the depths of your depravity, and he breathed new life into your lungs as someone who rescues another does. If you work in the medical field and someone comes to you and their heart has given out, you don't ask their permission to hit them with the defib because they couldn't give it. You hit them with it, and you deal with the repercussions later. You save their life. We were dead, Paul says, in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Elsewhere, he uses the same language in Ephesians 2. Paul writes it this way. That we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And so we get the full picture. As we compare here to Ephesians 2, that we were dead, what? By our trespasses, by our sins... And in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Paul here is being very helpful, I think. He's being a good pastor. He's not just leaving it vague. Dead in what, Paul? He gives us specifics. And so let's take a second under this first point to look at those specifics. We're told that we're dead. We were dead in our trespasses. What is a trespass? This is, this is what we call Christianese sometimes, right? It's, it's a word that if you've grown up in the church like myself, you've always heard this word. If you've spent one day in a VBS or Sunday school, you've heard this word trespass. We use it, but what does it mean? A trespass, simply put, is a false step. It's a false step. It's the crossing of a known boundary. Uh, Picture uh, what it is when someone sees that sign on your property that says private property, no trespassing, and they walk past it anyway. This can be viewed as active sin, or what some have called sins of commission, with a C. The picture here is that we trespassed. We actively broke God's law. We did that which he had commanded us not to do, and thus, we are rebels. But he doesn't just stop at trespasses. Paul tells us we were also dead in our sins. What is a sin? This is another one of those Christian words that we use all the time, but what does it mean? What is a sin? A sin is archery terminology. It's it's missing the mark. 
It's falling short of a standard that you've reached for. And you can picture a, few, a shooter at the gun range missing the bullseye. And so this can be viewed, alternatively, as opposed to trespasses, as passive sin. Or what's called sins of omission, with an O. We've sinned. We've broken God's law by failing to do that which he had commanded us to do. And therefore, not only are we rebels, but we're also failures. Paul says also that we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And here he really gets to the heart of the matter. These trespasses and these sins are just the outward. It's the effects of a deeper issue. That is the uncircumcision of our flesh. By this, Paul makes something clear for us, brothers and sisters. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's who we are by default at our very core. Our sin goes beyond just outward rebellion and outward failure that can be seen. The real picture here is that in actuality, those outward issues and those outward symptoms are a sign of an inward condition. That of our hearts and our souls being uncircumcised before the Lord. The uncircumcision of the flesh is the corruption of our very nature. What we call original sin. What we call total depravity. We were dead in the law, our trespasses and sins. But we were also dead in our very state of being. The uncircumcision of our flesh. And so here Paul is conveying to us the total depravity of our situation. That all men are naturally born in this state due to the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, we sinned. When they fail, we fail. When they ate, it was as good as if you or I were eating of the fruit ourselves. It is in the uncircumcision of our flesh that we are now born, according to Psalm 51.5, Born, conceived, the text says there, in iniquity, in total depravity. We are separated from God, Isaiah 59, 2. Rendered incapable of understanding even the simplest of spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Rendered incapable of doing any spiritual good, including the faith which would be necessary to come to Christ in the first place. Romans chapters 3 and 8 which has made even our best deeds apart from Christ filthy rags. Again, Isaiah 64. And one that might be very striking to understand in our current culture as we look to Proverbs 28.9 and John 9.31 that even the prayers of those apart from Christ are, quote, abominations to the Lord. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that apart from Christ and His work, this is our default This is what it means that we were found to be in the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were dead. In Ephesians 2, 11-12, Paul puts it this way. We were called the uncircumcision. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no one, and we were without God in this world. What does it mean that we were born in the uncircumcision of our flesh? That apart from Christ we are found to be in the uncircumcision of our flesh? It means you have no covenantal privileges. Your bodies themselves were considered impure and unclean. 
You were alienated from God's covenant community and all of the benefits and gifts and blessings that come with it. And that all of this is not just the result of some bad decisions you've made. It's not just the result of a bad day on my part. It's not out of character for me then when I sin and when I trespass before God's law. It's not the result of what we've done. It's not the result of our trespasses and sins, but rather who we are. Or as Christians, we could say who we were before Christ, the uncircumcision of our flesh. But thankfully, Paul doesn't finish there. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But God, but God, Paul writes, made you alive together with Christ. He dove in and he did pull you up and he did give you that divine cosmic CPR and he did breathe his spirit into you. Just as Christ, as we read in Colossians chapter 1, is the architect of creation. He is the word by which all things were created, by which all things are held together. He is the, the doer, as it were, of the first Genesis that we read of in Genesis chapter 1. It is also Christ who is the architect of your regenesis, your rebirth, your renewal, your regeneration. God saved you out of his sheer mercy, love, grace, and kindness as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. He did so when your condition was bleak, when you were dead. It was not of our works or our words or in any way, shape, or form of our efforts. Is it because we earned it? Is it because we deserved it? Is it because God looked down the tunnel of time, as some would say, and saw how good you and I would one day be? No. The biblical picture is that clearly, that apart from Christ, we had nothing in ourselves to be desired. We had no capability of earning any good or any blessing. If we could earn the mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. As we look at the biblical picture that we find throughout God's word, especially in passages such as Romans 1 through 3 of God's wrath upon sinners, we find it then that it is perfectly just. It would have been perfectly right and proper and good and just for God our Father to cast each of us down, to condemn us. But we find that by His grace and by His mercy and through the cross of Christ Jesus our Lord, that he chose instead to display his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness in each one of us undeserving wretches. We read here that he made us alive when we were dead. Not when we were worth loving. Not when you were deserving. But when you were dead. When you brought nothing of benefit to the table, that is when Christ invited you and pulled you up a seat and gave you a plate. That is the picture. We read in Romans 5, 6 through 11, that Christ died for us, not when we were strong, but when we were weak. Not when we were righteous and obedient, but when we were ungodly. Not when we were children and servants, but when we were enemies. We were helpless without strength, unable to help ourselves in our desperate state. And yet it was in that very state that God saw fit 
to save you, to make you alive, to bring you into his flock, to give you those covenantal privileges, to place his stamp, his mark, his Holy Spirit upon you and declare over you, mine. And he did it all. Not by your virtue, not by mine, but only by virtue of our union with Christ Jesus. Paul writes that he made you alive together with Christ. There's actually here, if you look at the Greek, some intentionally beautiful redundancy in the original language here. We don't have it translated because it reads really clunky. But I think it helps convey the point that Paul's getting across. The verb that Paul uses that I have here in my ESV to make alive is actually in the Greek a compound verb that means to make alive together with, with. And so he says in the verb that he has made us alive together with, and then repeated, God made you alive together with, and then he adds again another with him. And so if you were to translate it rigidly and literally, this is what we would have. That God made you alive together with him, with him. Do you see the emphasis? Do you see the point that Paul's trying to bring our attention to? Just like when we read that God is not just holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The, the, the author is trying to convey importance in that repetition. Like I mentioned earlier, they didn't have Microsoft Word. They couldn't bold or italicize or mark it in red. They repeated it. So too, Paul here does, as he writes it not once, but twice... That brothers and sisters, you have been made alive together with Christ. With Christ. John 1, 12 through 13, we're told likewise. That this is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we find that there are only two types of people in existence. And it isn't black or white. It isn't American or not American. It is not rich or poor. But there are simply these two types of people. People who were dead in their trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of their flesh. And people who are those very exact things right now. And it is only with Christ, only in Christ, only by Christ and His cross that this can change. Your works will never be enough. I grow tired and weary every time I have conversations. And I mean every time. That's not an exaggeration. Every time I have conversations with people, whether it be family members or friends who are, who are not Christians, and we try to have these conversations about what's the afterlife going to look like? Have you considered it, friend? We always get this feedback, or at least I do, of, well, I just hope my goods will outweigh my bad. That's my only hope. That's not a good hope. Your works, my works, will never be enough. Your attitude, my attitude, will never be enough. You hear it all the time. Well, they have good intentions. We all know the second part of that phrase. Only in Christ, only in His person and work and His cross, does God make the dead alive. Together with Christ. With Christ. So then union with Christ is the only way, the only key to unlock that door. It's the only entrance, the only way you or I or anyone else is getting in. And so what do we do? We flee to Him. We run to Him. We trust in Him. Only in Christ will you be justified, pardoned, and accepted. 
And this is applicable, brothers and sisters, not just to those who might be in the room who have never seen or tasted of this goodness. But it is applicable to us. Even those who are already saved, already in Christ, need this constant reminder. He who began the good work in you, it is him who will bring it to completion. Not you and not me. In your sanctification, Christian, flee to him. Run to him. Trust in him. This is the power of the cross to us. But we also see, secondly, the power of the cross to God. The power of the cross to God. Look with me at verse 14 where Paul writes that he's done this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Have you ever considered, brothers and sisters, that there is not just... There is not just direction towards us in the work of the cross, but direction, intention towards God himself. How has he forgiven you? How has he forgiven you? How can God just do that? Is he not a just judge? One who we read in God's very own word, who will by no means clear the guilty? How then can he forgive you? How can he forgive me? We see here actually that the reason the cross of Christ has power to save you, the very reason it has application to you, is because it also has power to God himself. It has respect not only to us, but to God himself. You see, here's the issue that Paul presents. And this is really the gospel in a nutshell. That your sins and trespasses, my sins and my trespasses, represented a mountain of bankruptcy before God. Of indebtedness to God himself, which you and I never could have any hope of repaying. Every minute of every day, every second of every minute, that we should have been working to repay it. Instead, we just kept adding to it. We just kept piling it on. We were a little bit like the federal government. Instead of cutting spending, we just kept borrowing. We keep incurring more and more and more and more debt. In an endless cycle of brokenness and shame. Some of you here this morning have experienced what it's like to be in crippling debt. You know what it's like to feel that crushing burden upon your shoulders. Some of you have way to like it laid awake at night, struggling with those fears and anxieties, those thoughts of how on earth will I ever be able to pay this off? How could I ever get out from underneath it? That constant weight and burden that you're always aware of when you're in debt. Always feeling the heaviness of it, the burden of it, the yoke of it. Paul says you are indebted to God just like this, but worse. There is a price To every one of our sins, the wages of that sin is death. And every day, every breath that we took, we just kept adding to it. But God. But God canceled, Paul says, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He shredded it up for all to see. This he set aside, Paul writes, nailing it to the cross Once again, the translation here I think is interesting. We have translated here as, quote, a record of debt. But the word literally means handwriting, a a hand specific, a handwritten copy, which it's posed that the 
incurer of the debt himself has signed. I mean, you're not unaware of it. It is a handwritten copy that you have your name signed upon this handwritten copy of your debt. And this gives us a fuller picture of what Paul means to convey here. One commentator describes this as, quote, Our written agreement to keep the law, our certificate of debt to it, But our failure to keep the law has turned the certificate into a bond held against us to prove our guilt. It is this bond representing the power which the law has over us rather than the law itself, which Paul views as having been canceled by Christ. And Christ has wiped that slate clean. Christ has taken that bond, that document which you had signed with every piece of acknowledgement, He has taken that hand-signed record of debt and he has ripped it apart and he has thrown it into the wind, casting it as far as the east is from the west. One brother, F.F. Bruce, wrote, he took that signed acknowledgement of our indebtedness, which stood as a perpetual witness against us, and he has canceled it by his death. And how did he do that? How has Christ taken that that debt which you owed and made it no more. Did God just sweep it under the rug? Did he just turn a blind eye to it? Is he playing favorites as it were? No. He did it. He set it aside. Those wages which was death by his very own death. By nailing it, Paul writes, to the cross. It is by his cross that God can be both A just judge, the one who will by no means clear the guilty, the one who will by no means turn a blind eye, the one who will by no means let evil go unpunished, but it is by the cross that he can do those things and also be the merciful one, the loving father, the one who shows steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. And so it is that we read that in Christ Jesus and by his cross that he is both the just and the justifier By the cross, God can be both merciful and just to us who deserve death. It is through Christ and His cross that God saves you. Not just from your sin, but in a sense from Himself. It is through the cross of Christ that God has saved you from His very own wrath which you deserved. The wages of sin, we know this, is death. And that wage, that debt, will be paid. It will be paid. There is no loan forgiveness here. It's not just going to go away. Either you will pay it by your own death, or by the death of another. Either you will pay it, or Christ will pay it in your place if you place your faith, your trust, and your hope in His person and work. So we read in God's word that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We read again in 2 Corinthians that God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And contrary to what some would have you believe, it is the gospel. You have no gospel without the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal meaning punishment. Substitutionary meaning He takes your place. 
The punishment you deserved in atonement, meaning that through that he has now purchased you for himself. This is the gospel. In Christ Jesus, by his cross, the debt has been paid in full. The transgressions have been accounted for. For all those who belong to him, who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, his person and his works. God is now reconciled to you, brother and sister. His demands have been satisfied on your account. Your debt has been paid in full. One brother put it this way. Jesus for thee a body takes. Thy guilt assumes, thy fetters break. Discharging all thy dreadful debt. And canst thou then such love forget? And so we've observed the power of the cross to us and to God. And third and quickly and finally we observe also the power of the cross to the enemy. We read in verse 15 that Christ by his cross disarmed the rulers and authorities. And I love this part. He didn't see it fit just to win, right? My dad used to tell me, some of you will agree with this, some of you won't. Our culture's getting, getting a little bit shy about conversations like this, but that's okay. If there's a winner, there's got to be a loser. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he didn't see fit to just end it there. He didn't just win and walk away. He put them to open shame. He dragged them in the public square, mocking them, making fun of them, pointing at them for all to laugh at the enemy by triumphing over them in him. We've already covered a couple times, especially last week, that rulers and authorities is a very specific phrase that Paul uses. Always and every time to refer to supernatural demonic powers, the devil and his demons. We learn here in verse 15 that their greatest weapon that they had was their condemning power of the law of God against us. And so we find that the demonic forces at work in the universe, they try to use God's law as weapons against us in a couple of ways. One, they tempt us as they did our first parents in the garden to ignore it, to disobey it, to neglect it, to mock it, to scorn it, to think ourselves above it. They ask us that very question that the serpent asked to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? But secondly, they love to use it to accuse us. To bring before us always our sins and our failures. There's a band which I love that I would commend to you. I don't commend a lot of modern Christian bands, but I'll commend this one to you and encourage you to look them up. A band called Shane and Shane. They really write modern hymns more than they do modern worship music. But they have a song entitled Embracing Accusation. In it they write that the devil, quote, He's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. He sings that first verse so conveniently, but he forgets the refrain, Jesus saves. Jesus, at the core, took away the condemning power of the law forever. At his cross, he disarmed all the demonic forces And he then put them to open shame, triumphing over them. I usually shy away from giving this many Greek or Hebrew lessons in one sermon, but here it is. The word triumph, it's a fun word. It conveys specifically a victory parade. A victory parade. In the ancient world, when an enemy was defeated, 
He would be led in public to show open shame, to show how bad their defeat was and how complete their victory of the conqueror was over them. It publicly shamed the defeated enemy and brought both praise and appropriate fear for the conquering victor. Do you see the point then? One commentator put it this way, that Christ by His cross releases His people not only from the guilt of sin, but from its hold over them. Not only has Christ blotted out the record of their indebtedness, but He has subjugated those powers whose possession of that damning indictment was a means of controlling them. The very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile enemies thought they had Him in their grasp had conquered Him forever was turned by Christ into the instrument of their defeat and disablement. Now they are dethroned. Now they are incapacitated. And that shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession, the involuntary and impotent confessors of his superior might. By his cross then, brothers and sisters, Christ has utterly and completely, once and for all, destroyed the devil and his demons. So completely that it mocks them, that it shames them. And here's the good news for you and me. If you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, his victory is your victory. His triumphal march is your triumphal march. And so we may now say along with Christ... Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? We are alive together with Him. This is the power of the cross to us, to God, and to the enemy. Would you join me in prayer?